Our fears are like dragons guarding our greatest treasures. We have to be able to have like the courage to be able to vocalize and confront our fears because they're going to keep us from doing great things. That's Steve Shelton on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. Up until a couple years ago, Steve was pretty miserable with the professional life he was living. But if you were to speak with the 18-year-old Steve Shelton, that was not a future he anticipated. You see, Steve's story was one of overcoming early challenges in his life. He didn't grow up with a lot of money, and he was a bit overweight, but that didn't deter him. He worked harder than the other kids, began to excel at sports. His drive was further fueled with an inspirational high school football coach who taught him how to be a leader and a good man. Unfortunately for Steve, his life went sideways as soon as he hit college. His college football coach and many of the other people he worked for for the last two decades weren't great leaders. They didn't develop him, received little to no mentorship, and they didn't have his back when it mattered. So over time, Steve became defensive and angry and wanted to fight back. Simply put, he had a chip on his shoulder. Steve continued to meander through corporate life until he had enough. No longer would he be a victim. But Steve didn't jump. He started dabbling in things. He became a football coach. He got certified in yoga and started to teach. Doing the things that fulfilled him gave him the confidence to pursue work that brought him back to the feelings he had as a kid. Steve now has two companies focused on helping people realize their potential, physically and mentally. My name is Mike Kearney, your host. After spending nearly three decades at Deloitte, I am devoting my life to helping people sing their song as a coach and as a podcast host. These stories of rock bottom redemption are the inspiration for the podcast. If you are someone who has a chip on your shoulder, but knows deep down there is something more purposeful out there for you, what Steve has to say may just provide the inspiration that you need to make a change. Steve's journey has a story arc of a few highs, mostly lows, but he didn't let that stop him in pursuing a path that connected him with the time when he felt alive. And at the end of the day, that's what most of us are looking for, work that makes us feel whole, like we are doing something in our lives that actually matters. If that resonates with you, take a listen to my conversation with Steve Shelton, a normal guy like you and me who decided. It was time to sing his song. Steve Shelton, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. I am really looking forward to digging through your story. Uh, You've shared a bit about it with me. But before we get there, let's just start with who you are. Tell us a bit about yourself. I grew up pretty poor. So we had, a like when I say a shack of a house, it was literally a two-bedroom shack of a house. Um, while growing up in kind of this middle-class neighborhood where I had a lot of friends that, um, their families made a lot more money than we did. So there was that aspect of not, not having that same type of financial situation. Um, and I remember as a kid, like one of the, the kids that I was friends with in the neighborhood, his father owned multiple restaurants. He had every toy growing up. Like he, I was a huge star Wars kid. Right. So he had the the entire Millennium Falcon uh, as like an operational model for his uh, Star Wars figurines. 
And I was like, I didn't even know that thing existed. That's amazing. Um, but with that, growing up, it was pretty commonplace for, for us to run around. There was at least 20 kids in the neighborhood. So we're always out and about playing football in the streets, playing dodgeball, soccer, you name it. Um, but I also grew up a little bit as the chubby kid. So all of my friends were very not chubby. They were very skinny and just constantly playing and running around. So I was always lagging behind because I was not in as good a shape. Um, but I remember I played soccer, baseball, basketball, you name the sport. I played it growing up and there was something about the, the praise and the attention that I got playing the sports, um, because I had some natural athletic tendencies. And so playing soccer, I did pretty well playing football, baseball, you name it. Um, and I think those all gave me a really good understanding of how to interact with others, but also what it meant to really connect into something that I enjoyed doing and try to do it to the best of my ability. Um, and then I, that led me into playing football. So I want to go there, but I'm curious because you've said three things that really stand out before you got to your sports journey, which I think is very important in your overarching story. But you said you grew up in a blue collar town. You grew up poor, and then you were also chubby. So maybe take me into the mindset of a young kid. Like, how did, how did that make you feel? Or, or do you think it had that big of an impact on who you ultimately became? Yeah, I, I, I'll address the feeling piece, but I, I definitely know it had a major impact on who I became. So from, from the feeling standpoint, um. A big part of what I felt, especially with the kids in the neighborhood, was a not good enough kind of feeling towards them of they seem to excel and have an ease of like uh, being really active and, and like I automatically think of like riding our mountain bikes mm. uh, around the neighborhood and me always lagging behind them, um, feeling very Tommy Boy-like, <laughs> you know, like just a step or two behind. Um, <laughs> And so that aspect of it, and also I'm, a, I'm an only child, so I also had a lot of uh, experiences to where what I tried to do was be the best at the sport so I could actually be involved to play with them, right? So even if I wasn't as cardio in shape, if I had the, the skills and the, the knowledge of the sport, if I could play well, then that would lead to me being included. Right. So do you think Steve at the time, and you may not have thought this, but did it motivate you in some respects? It obviously sounds like you did have success in sports. So do you think, you know, some of these things that were holding you back actually potentially propelled you forward? Uh, definitely. So like, I, I think about the, the people that I looked up to the athletes that I looked up to, like, Tony Gwynn for baseball and just how consistent and good he was at hitting the ball, which also Frank Thomas, like he was just mm. a beast of a person and could smash the ball. And I liked that power aspect of it because it stood out more. Right. So I would go to the, the elementary school that was two blocks down the road from me, take a bucket of balls and a, uh, a T-ball stand and basically sit there and just practice hitting a baseball into the backstop a hundred times a day. Cause I think I heard one of those major, major league baseball players talking about that's what they did to improve. 
And so doing those types of things that included tennis and taking a tennis ball in my racket and going up to the elementary school and just hitting the tennis ball into the side of the wall and learning how to like understand timing and how to hit a forehand or a backhand and those types of things. And it also got into a very meditative type of component to it. Right. And doing it that religiously led into like a better understanding or a deeper understanding of the physical aspects of it, but also like how to take my time and connect into that feeling where I hit the ball really well um, or, or did something that connected into that sport, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And what I find interesting is that even though you had some challenges in your life, everybody does, you were able to use it for your benefit. Was there anything that, I guess your situation created from a, a challenge perspective, like when you reflect back upon that time, was there a dark side? Yeah, I think, and that's a really good question. Um, I think for me, there was that aspect of yearning to belong and be accepted into the group, you know? And so um, there was definitely an aspect of one growing up chubby and not being accepted because of that, because of the fact I wasn't able to keep up with the other kids that were just riding their bikes super fast or running through the neighborhood and uh, just constantly active. And then, so that created that challenge of not feeling connected or belonging. And then also if I felt like I, um, if someone was being rude, judgmental or something like that towards me, um, I was also a fairly sensitive kid. so. I would go into my escapism type of like I had and still have a great imagination. And so being that only child, it was very easy for me to escape into my own world of imagination and utilize that as my my way to cope with not feeling like I belonged or was treated nicely. Yeah, it's interesting that whole notion of belonging. It's one of the things that concerns me about my kids. I've got a 14 year old and I oftentimes worry that there's such a need to belong, especially, especially now it was obviously true back in the day as well, but, um, now and, and, you know, potentially creating situations where kids do stupid things. And then as I was thinking about that comment, I was just thinking about all the dumb things that older people do when they feel a need to belong. Cause I don't think this is necessarily just relegated to, you know, a, a young kid growing up in the Midwest. I mean, if you just step back and look at the things that people do in corporate world, or in their adult life, um, you know, many things that people do just so that they can belong that oftentimes um, are not the are not the things that people are most proud of. Um, so I think it's interesting and in, in to think about that whole notion of belonging and what it does to the psyche of somebody. Oh, completely. Um, from my experience, I've seen a lot in regards to how people will, I'll, I'll speak from my own standpoint. I've, I've experienced myself being in the IT security community for so long. There's a component to that culture that as a sales rep, you're expected to wine and dine your customers. And there's also a, I'll say a coping mechanism in IT security because of the level of stress where alcohol is heavily involved. So the challenge for somebody like me is it doesn't always feel great to consistently have a drinking component into your, my weekly regimen. 
Um, especially if like for me, the reason that I changed my career is I wanted to feel better physically, mentally, and emotionally. And so I've cut out drinking over the past two years where previously I might allow my values or principles to, to kind of be a little erased in order to say, you know what, I'd really like to build a relationship with this person. I know that that person likes to drink. I'm going to take them out for drinks as a mode to connect and socialize and let some of the walls come down between us. Steve, I think what you're pointing out is so important. I want to ask you a question about this whole idea of uh, feeling better physically, emotionally, and spiritually. But I will tell you, I have seen that time and time again. And that's my whole point about people wanting to fit in uh, and feel connected and be accepted when you're older. It's like you do things that you know you shouldn't. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people truly are stuck right now in their careers where they feel like they're doing things that are not congruent with who they are as an individual, but they have to do it or they believe they have to do it in order to be successful, which is totally fucked up. I mean, just to be honest with you, but, but it's great that you saw a way out. So what I'd love to ask you um, is can you dig down or go down a little deeper on this whole notion of wanting to feel better physically, emotionally, and mentally or, or spiritually even, and how that really pushed you to make a change? If that was the impetus. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was partially that and partially looking at where I was in life and what I wanted my legacy to be. I think that was a big part of it, too. Um, thinking about uh, the Robin Williams movie, Dead Poet Society, where he talks about he shows them the the pictures of the students that have graduated before them. And he's like, look at these these students, they all were like you. They were yearning to make a mark and leave their mark on the world. And what's the mark that you're going to leave? I think that's the right <laughs> scene to it. Yeah. But, uh, that was a big part of it. But essentially, like, especially with COVID, like COVID exacerbated all of the mental and emotional issues for everybody. It was the most, like, significant event that I've been a part of as well as most of anybody in this generation, right? So the challenge between having so much access and connection to people through technology, and especially from a social media standpoint, seeing all these things that are creating this, this false visual or world of, of what people think others should and need to be acting like, when in reality, it disconnects us even more because there's such unrealistic expectations placed on everybody and in, in all this stuff. But like, it's such a challenge for me personally to feel like I'm living my life in regards to somebody else's ex expectations or judgments or opinions. But that's the challenge that we're all faced with today, right? Yeah, you know, I uh, I think I may be in the minority, but COVID was actually probably good for me in some respects, even though I agree with everything that you just said. I think it made me for the first time in a long time pause and really think about where I wanted to take my life. Yep. It also got me off the road. And I'll tell you, that was a, a blessing that um, I love and gave me the opportunity to spend time with family. And I think for me, it was probably the impetus which made me say, okay, something needs to change. So while it was difficult... And I don't want to discount the fact that there was a lot of people suffering 
you know, in our country and around the world. But, but when I look back, my COVID experience was one that I think it's going to have a, a net positive impact on my life going forward. And maybe it was just because it, it was that moment where I could just step back and really think about what I wanted out of life. So it's interesting. I've been, as you've been talking, I've been writing down kind of you know, Steve's current situation when he was working in the corporate world. You know, it was COVID, uh, there were health related considerations. You really were starting to find this calling. It's not what you said, but I would, what I would say is, uh, you know, how to care for people. I think you experienced that through yoga and some of the other things that you were doing with your, your friends and colleagues. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you felt like you're selling vaporware. I would say, though, this is not that uncommon. Like a lot of people complain about their jobs. Uh, was there anything else that when you think about that time, you're like, God, I had to make a change. Was there anything else that kind of pushed you? And we'll get into what that change really looked like and the steps that you took. But but take us back to that time where life was not great for you, it does not sound. Uh, was there anything else that rose uh, to the top of the list? Yeah, there was several things. So I'll try to be as concise as possible. <laughs> but the the first was my experience playing football. So my high school, I'll say my experience playing football my corporate experience with management, and then also uh, my daughter was a big part of it. So the football piece of it was I played high school football. It was kind of like the Friday Night Lights experience where it was big in the community. Our rival game, we had 15,000 people there, and it was it was an amazing experience, not just from like the amount of people that were there, but it was more like how connected to the community it was. But my coach in high school was very clear on what it took to be on the team, what it took to excel as a football player, as well as how to be a leader. And he was also really big on lifting everybody up opposed to breaking people down. Um, So in that, I felt a really strong relationship and like a, a mentorship from him in regards to what it meant to be a good football player, a good citizen, a good steward, all those things. And there was a really strong community and culture on the football team, at least in high school. Steve, one of the things that I think I just want to emphasize and tell me if you think I'm right or wrong. One of your first examples of an adult role model model was your coach. And it sounds like he was a true leader. Like he really fostered the sense of community. He he built you up as as a young man. He was like the prototypical leader that you probably wanted to work with in the future. From my standpoint, it was an incredible environment that he created because everybody on the team, like it was very much promoted that you're, this is a team sport. We're all in this together. So you need to be able to, to depend on the person next to you and know and trust that they're going to work just as hard to support you as you are to them. Right. And it's, it's an amazing environment when that type of mindset permeates throughout the organization um, because it's so motivating. There's so much optimism and positivity that it just permeates. Mm, I love that. So you're probably like, wow, this is, this is what great leadership looks like. Life is going to be great. Here's this kid from a small Midwestern town, you know, a little bit overweight, poor family, blue collar. Life is going to be great. Totally. What happened next? So then I had dreams of playing in the NFL. I got hurt halfway through my senior year of high school. So I didn't have, and I also played offensive line, defensive line. 
And for those that are listening, I'm six feet tall, 220 pounds. So that's not ideal offensive or defensive line size. So I wanted to play linebacker, but unfortunately we didn't have the size in high school. So I jumped in to fill the need. And then I got basically recruited into college as a linebacker. So since I didn't have the, the film to go to a big D1 school, I got accepted to Illinois and Auburn and Miami, which meant I would have had to walk on and I didn't want to be the tackling dummy for all the big D1 guys. So I ended up getting a scholarship to go to St. Ambrose University in Iowa. Um, it's an NAIA's, NAIA type of division, which means it's somewhere close to a Division II uh, NCAA school. And so I get drafted in by the head coach, or drafted, I get recruited by the head coach. And because of that, I automatically look at that and interpret that as he came to my home to recruit me. He basically said that he's really focused in a similar capacity to my high school coach of helping not only focus on the athletic ability, but building the whole person and basically kind of committed to having my back and taking care of me when I went to college. Hmm. So you're like, this is great. This seems like the coach I've been playing for all these years in high school. Totally. I'm right. It's completely in line. I can't wait to take what I've learned in high school and bring it to the college scene. And the, the guy that I have to compete against on a daily basis for practice is six foot eight, 300 pounds. And I'd never seen a guy that size prior. Um, but it became this thing where the culture was not, was very different from high school. So the culture that the head coach was, was, or had created was more of a, um, survival of the fittest. And this is all my opinion. I could be completely wrong based upon how I interpreted it, but it felt like more of a survival of the fittest. Like he had his guys that were his guys. And if you weren't in that kind of his guys grouping, then there wasn't as much attention at least applied to me. So that six foot eight, 300 pound guy was definitely one of his guys. And we had a situation where uh, something happened early on uh, as a freshman between he and I, and it felt like the head coach didn't have my back. And so from that moment on, I took a very adversarial stance, um, which I think, I don't think, I know that's, that's one of the coping skills that I developed over the years was taking somebody as a position of authority that if I felt like they didn't have my back, that I was not going to be as invested or it was going to be adversarial and I was going to show them how good I really was. Hmm. And so now you've had this experience, great coach, now bad coach, and now you got a chip on your shoulder. It right. sounds like big time. So, so how it, did that, how did that extend outside of college football? Like, did you take that when you started to move into the corporate world? Yeah. So one of the things that I, I've realized very recently is my sophomore year of college, I felt like I was really growing as a football player and I was trying to carry on that the teachings that I had from high school football of in order to be the best, you have to outwork, you have to work harder, you have to be a great teammate. So I thought I was doing all the right things and I still was not getting the playing time and really any varsity playing time. Um, and it was a challenge having some of the other very key football players on the team talking to me saying, I don't understand why you're not getting the playing time. Like when you're practicing, you're all over the place doing a great job. Some of the coaches are saying the same thing. So after my sophomore year, I really was, was at a loss to understand what was preventing me from getting more playing time and uh, participating and belonging like I yearned to. 
And I also didn't have the emotional intelligence at the time to go to the head coach and communicate all of these things in an effective way. So I, I went to his office after the, the sophomore season had ended. And I said, to my recollection, recollection um, I was trying to get through, like, I don't understand what's not getting me involved. He seemed very distracted with uh, the coaches in the office and things going on. So he didn't seem that focused on what I was saying, which also made me feel further like he didn't care. Um, and so I'm, I'm choking up trying to explain, like, I want to be more involved. What do I need to do? And the answer was not very descriptive. And it came through as like, you know, just keep doing what you're doing type thing. And I'm like, well, what I'm doing is not getting me the results. So I, I need some help. And it was kind of like a shoulder shrug response from him. So I'm like, I, I'm kind of feeling like I need to just hang up the cleats and quit, essentially. So he's like, all right, do what you need to do. And so as I was trying to get that stuff out, I'm, I'm choking and stumbling over my words and kind of welling up with tears in my eyes. And for him to just say, yeah, go ahead and quit, then that just reinforced the fact that I felt like he didn't really care about me as a person. What's interesting, though, just to go back a minute or two, you did say when you first approached him, you didn't employ the emotional intelligence that you potentially would today. Do you think that would have changed the situation? Um, I, I'm sure it would have changed the situation in some context. I think a lot of that that challenge for me was also the fear of being vulnerable to him because from an athletic standpoint, and this also holds true for corporate America, whether it's technology or sales or whatever, there's, there's a, a stigma or fear of being vulnerable and authentic about I'm having a challenge emotionally or mentally with this thing and expressing that to a superior because of the fear of them being seen like, well, this person's not able to perform. I'm going to get rid of them or bench them, you know? Well, and, and I think uh, we're also talking about this today in 2022. I think this was probably, what, around 2000, I'm yeah. guessing? Yeah, times are different back then, right? Like totally. going, going and being a little emotional with a coach was probably not the thing to do. Yeah, and, and it wasn't. I know you mentioned this before we jumped on the podcast, which I think that's interesting, like a 10% hit rate on, I'll just say leadership that connects with you or that is good at developing you or all the other attributes. What were some of the things that that you saw were missing from those different leaders through that process? Um, I think that one that did it positively, <laughs> I jokingly say that he kind of ruined it for everybody else. Um, so I'll, I'll talk about him and then what they were missing. So from his standpoint, he was also a, a former football player, but he, it sounds like he had more experiences like my high school experience where he was, he had coaches that looked to lift everybody up and to help remove obstacles and help them be the best version of themselves as, as an athlete and as a person. And that's really what he took to heart and how he approached basically managing and directing his teams. So it's a rarity to find somebody, at least in my experience within software sales, that has a selfless approach to he, he literally looked at it as his job was to serve his team and not the other way around. And so like that mentality, his focus was protecting the sales team from all the, the noise up top from the executive standpoint 
and just allowing us to be able to do our jobs, but also mm. helping show us if it really understand how we operate. So that way he knew, okay, this is a gap for Steve. I, I need to coach him up on this area. It's funny. So, we, uh, we did some research back in the day where we looked at what we called hyper successful projects. And what we would find is one of the hallmarks hallmarks is leaders that would operate as a shit umbrella, meaning they would protect the team from all the BS that comes from, from the top. And that sounds like what he did well. Hugely. He was a shit umbrella. You like that? Yeah. There oh, completely. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a dead on term for it, you know? Um, and I think that's part of the challenge is thinking about the other leaders that I reported into, that's such a minority view and behavior set is when others feel like they're overwhelmed, they then tend to allow that stuff to spill over to the ones that they manage or direct. You know what, Steve, I find interesting. One of the reasons why I started this podcast was to get away from kind of the highfalutin textbook ways of leadership. And when I reflect on what you said was good leadership for this, you know, guy that was the 10%, we'll just call him. It was pretty basic stuff, right? It was like actually taking an interest in his people. It was protecting them from all of the organizational bureaucracy, you know, doing all the things that on a human level you'd expect a leader to do. Totally. I, I saw a LinkedIn post this morning, uh, Ira Winkler, who's the the CISO for a, a large company, he posted something about uh, true leadership, and he highlighted Andrew Smeaton, who's um, I think he just changed roles now. He's the CISO for Affinity. Um, Smeaton had some some team members or a team member that was based in Kiev, Ukraine, and so right when the war started breaking out, that team member was at risk with his wife and family of being in the midst of all that, the war that was going on. Yep. So from what I understand, Smeaton flew over to, and has this incredible story about flying over to Germany, getting there and trying to figure out a way to get across the border into the Ukraine, which required also giving up a watch in order to get a really crappy Toyota. Uh, something that I, I think the hood needed to be duct taped to make it stay down or something like that. So it was not the ideal like circumstances to get into the Ukraine, but he took to heart everything that I'm sure he had been telling his team prior of how much he cares about them and how much he values them and how important they are. The difference for Smeaton was that he actually proved it with his actions. And I think that's also a huge aspect of there's so much lip service that can be paid to I really want, you know, I'm here for you. I want to be able to help you grow and do all these things. But if your actions aren't in alignment with the words and your thoughts, then it doesn't mean anything. Totally. You know, I've known some leaders that are like unbelievable when they present and people are like, oh my gosh, I would do anything I could do to work with them. But then when you get to know them on an individual basis, because you actually see what they do on a daily basis, you're like, not a great leader. And so I always think about that a lot because it literally does not matter what you say. It, it's what you do. And I think that's what you're, what you're talking about. Big time. Yeah. So, so you, you obviously have this run once again, 10% is not a good batting average. It's not a good average on any level. Um, so you have a lot of bad leaders that you're probably being beaten down by. So ultimately you decide to make a change. But I got to be honest, Steve, I, I hear all the time, like, 
it's again, like I said earlier, like, oh, I don't like the work. I don't like the boss. Yes, the money is important, but I could do without it. And so there's all of these different ideas that people have about the potential future, but they don't pull the trigger. And so I guess that's what I'm curious about is ultimately, and we're going to talk about what you're doing now and, and how you ultimately got there. But was there a moment in time where you're like, no more, I can't do this. This is the breaking point. Yeah, um, <laughs> completely. So I'll mention a couple of things, because I think for those that are struggling with this, this concept, it'll be relevant. So being the, the musician that I was, um, I was going through a, a, a big challenge in my personal life. My now 19-year-old daughter, her mother and I were never married, but we separated when my daughter was about a year, year and a half old. Um, in that time, I've grown up with parents that are still married 50 years later. They're very lovey-dovey, affectionate, and great role models for a relationship. However, they, they were not perfect in every area, just to, to set the, the expectation on that. But... Um, my daughter's mother was was very challenging to deal with from my perspective. Um, part of it was I just thought it was a personality and, and the anger that she had or I had in regards to the separation and no longer being on the same team, quote unquote. Um, there was a lot more to it, but we ended up going through a, a child custody court process just to my intent was to protect my time with my daughter. It ended up turning into this much bigger um, situation. And so it exposed a lot of the emotional and mental issues that were existent for her mother, for myself, et cetera. And it required a lot of self-reflection, a lot of work on my part personally, just to understand like how I was contributing and how I could better influence or model myself in the situation. So a lot of that took a lot of energy and focus away from my job. So that had a major impact over the years with that alone. Then, and I, I bring that up because I also had a plan as a, a musician to leave corporate America and do the music thing because that was more impactful and connected with people and blah, blah, blah. But the real thing that came up over the past couple of years was uh, the last corporate gig that I had um, there's a lot of instability with the organization and constant reorganization in terms of people. So I think I had three directors in the course in less than 18 months. Wow. So it was very hard to have any consistency and develop a routine and that type of thing. But then the last person that was placed as, as my director was a great salesperson and he was put into a very challenging position. So I'm sure his anxiety and stress was really high, but he was very much a micromanager and managed by, I would say, fear and negative reinforcement, which is opposite to what I need to, to thrive. So from my standpoint, I took it as a clear cut sign from the universe of if you really want to leave corporate America, we're going to help you jump out. We're going to push you out, right? But let me understand this because you had nine bosses seemingly that were really bad. What do yeah. you think it was about this time? And, and Steve, let me just contextually the reason why I'm asking this question. Um, I'm always curious, what are, what's the thing that pushes somebody at a certain point in time to make that change? Like, why didn't you make it before? Um, 
there were several reasons why I didn't make it before. So I brought up the situation with my daughter in the child custody case. I had saved up several years worth of, um, of income to cover my expenses. So that way, if, if I decided to leave corporate America, I had a nest egg to cover me for a couple of years. All of that money was spent during the custody process. Mm. Right. So that was one, two, I had, uh, two things. I had always found a reason to justify staying in it. And it's, it's a bit of a challenge, especially as a software sales rep, like a, a lot of us would talk about is the, the golden handcuffs, or I would describe it as a velvet prison. Like we're on a prison of some sorts, but the six figure salary plus the commissions and all the benefits of being a software salesperson make it a much nicer prison than the majority of others and the prison cells that they have with their corporate jobs. So there was always a way to, to kind of justify and let the fear and the doubt creep in from actually making a change. It's funny, like two of the things that you've said have centered around money. And one of the things I think is actually very respectable is that it sounds like many years ago you made the decision to save so that you could leave. Unfortunately, that money, as you indicated, was taken during the custody battle. So kudos to, that you, kudos to you that you did that. But then when you started to reflect later, okay, I kind of want to leave. I'm making damn good money. Like that would be kind of foolish for me to do this. And ultimately you got over that, that, that mental block. Yeah, it, there was a few things. So one I'd seen, <laughs> I'd gotten introduced to Tony Robbins like six or seven years ago. Yep. Um, I'd never really paid any attention to him because I remember being a teenager in the nineties and seeing his infomercials about like self-improvement and right. all this stuff. And I'm like, I'm a teenager. I don't need any self-improvement. I'm pretty awesome as it is. Uh, and all that was somewhat tongue in cheek, but didn't really pay any attention to it. Right, right. And then, um, I also got into, and I'll, I'll plug this just because you and I talked about this, um, the movie, the men who stare at goats. So with yep. Jeff Bridges, yep. George Clooney, Kevin Spacey, um, that movie was based on this group called the first earth battalion. And the first earth battalion was created by the U S military after Vietnam to be peacekeepers in the world. So there was a very pragmatic kind of, uh, program in regards to here's the eight steps in these different categories that you need to master in order to be kind of a Jedi. And I always wanted to be Obi-Wan Kenobi, but it was very pragmatic in the sense of you don't have to do all of these things. If you like gardening, learn how to garden, surround yourself by others that like to garden and then teach others how to garden. That's how you start making the world a better place. And I was like, that's such an easy way to make the world a better place. Like, why am I not just doing something like that? So that being exposed to Tony Robbins, who talks in similar concepts. And then I also saw a video from Steve Harvey. Um, I think he, he hosts the Family Feud. Um, he was talking after one of the, the recordings to the audience and basically saying like, somebody must have vocalized they they're wanting or yearning to be their own person and have more freedom and not work for somebody else. And he's like, you have to jump. Like you're standing on your cliff right now, looking down and feeling all the fear and the doubt of if you jump, you have the risk of dying or getting hurt. He's like, but the trick is, is you have to jump. Like 
until you do, you're not going to understand what freedom is and what true greatness is and all that. So I'm paraphrasing, but like that video really spoke to me. And so having this director that I had at the end of my corporate career was just one of those things where I'm 44 years old now. Like there's no reason for, for that type of management style that is typically reserved for brand new sales reps that don't know what they're doing for me as a 40 something year old to be dealing with that type of interaction where I feel like I'm not valued, I'm not cared for. And if that's the case, that I'm going to jump off of my cliff and find my own way. And that was really the, the whole precipice behind it. I love that metaphor. Do you remember the moment where you're like, I'm jumping? Uh, the first time I talked to that manager. Interesting. I asked him, he, he wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation and kind of do the whole dog and pony show of I'm, I'm your new manager now, changes have happened, blah, blah, blah. And so I had heard his reputation already preceded him, you know? And so he's, his reputation was that he was challenged in interpersonal relationships and he was very focused on being an individual contributor opposed to like working with others or at least that it, that was a skill set. And so my first conversation with him, I asked him outright, like, so what do you know about me? And he kind of laughed and then he didn't really go into it. And then he didn't ask anything about me. Hmm. So that to me was automatically, he chose not to have a connecting, like relationship building conversation. Instead, he just went into what his expectations were as a director. So you're like, I'm, I'm done with this. Did you, yeah. when you ultimately made the decision to move on, and I do want to pivot to what you're doing now, cause it's, it's fascinating, but did you do anything to get comfortable with taking the jump? Like, did you have a safety net? And I don't necessarily mean a financial safety net, but something that gave you the confidence to take that jump or did you just do it? Uh, it was a combination. So most people, uh, would probably say it was pretty stupid the way that I did it. And I'm still questioning if it was stupid or not. <laughs> That's a different story. But um, one, my wife is a personal trainer. And so I've got a good support system through my wife and my family and my friends. Um, and also, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that. So the support system was really important. Two, so I talked it over with my wife and I'm like, is this crazy? And she, she was the first one to say, I see how much you hate what you're doing. Like she really wanted me to find something that I loved doing and that I enjoyed doing and brought good things out of me instead of negative things out of me. And hey, so Steve, can I point out something there? Cause I think it's really important. I think oftentimes when we're, you know, the protagonist in the story, right? Like, it's like, oh my gosh, if I make this leap, things are going to turn out really bad. And my guess is your wife probably saw something in you. She's like, I know you, Steve, you're going to, you're going to be fine. And I think that's the case with many different circumstances like this. I know it's true with me and my wife. Like she's always like, ah, you know, what's the worst that could happen? What we have to have a smaller home or we need to move somewhere else or do something different, whatever. That's fine. No big deal, but you're probably going to do great. And it sounds like that's what your wife was. And I think that's oftentimes something that we don't take into consideration when making these decisions is, is really what others see, because they oftentimes have a lot more confidence in our decisions than we do. Oh, weirdly. 
I, I think that's very true. The, the whole aspect, especially, and I'll throw this out there, of especially for men, like so many of us are taught not to talk about our fears or our feelings or things that make us come off as vulnerable. When in reality, we need to be able to, to express those things because of the fact um, Ray Wiley Hubbard is one of my favorite songwriters down in Texas. And he was talking about this book called Letters to a Young Poet or From a Young Poet. It's a book that this young poet is writing to uh, Rainier Maria Rilke. And so Rilke has this line that our fears are like dragons guarding our greatest treasures. Mm, I love that. Right. And so we have to be able to have like the courage to be able to vocalize and confront our fears because they're going to keep us from doing great things. Absolutely. So I have like this, I drew this little picture. I like to take notes while I'm talking. It's like, here's Steve standing at the top of a cliff and because of all this encouragement and you know, his ninth bad experience with a shitty boss, he jumps. So tell me about what jumping looked like. What did you decide to do? And, and I'm really curious, what did the days and weeks look like after you decided to make a change? Mm. So there's several things. One, I had gotten certified to teach yoga. So I was teaching virtually to a few of my friends, which included some IT security leaders. And I, I enjoyed doing it. Steve, can I ask one quick question? Because that seems like that may have been the entry into some of this. How long did it take for you to get certified? Because the reason why I'm asking this is a lot of times people will talk about side hustles or entry into doing something different. Mm -hmm. And this may have been yours. Um, but what was the investment of time? It, it was roughly nine months to a year. Okay. And, and how many hours a month would you say? Um, probably I'd spend... There was a two hour, it was a four hour class. It's a four hour class each week, I believe. Okay. So maybe, maybe, maybe 10 hours a week. Okay. That was studying time, practicing, and then going to a class. And, and even if it, even if it wasn't the impetus for change, it's obviously from a health perspective, something very good. The reason why I raise this is there's a lot of times people will say, oh, I want to do something different. And I'm kind of tired of this whole side hustle bullshit because I think it's overused. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what you did was you just started to do something, yoga. You were able to do it on your time. Yes, it cut into other things that you probably did before, but you were able to get certified in yoga which then kind of, as you're sharing the story, set you up for kind of, you know, part two. But, but any thoughts on that, like the investment of time in getting yoga certified and how that actually contributed to, you know, your progression outside of the corporate world? Yeah, I think a big part of it for me was um, I've got a friend who is married with two young children, I think roughly nine and seven years old. He's a triathlete. And so he would talk to me about how I'm like, how do you balance that? Plus your demanding job and then family life and all that. And he's like, well, I have to get up at 4 a.m. so I can get my run in or my bike in. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, who gets up at 4 a.m. in the first place? Um, right. So that was really surprising to me. But to me, it also highlighted like he prioritizes that. Like he wants to be able to do all these things. 
and he's still able to be there, you know, be present for his family, be there with his job and do all the things that he wants to do. And then I also started getting exposed to David Goggins. So that whole mentality of I'm connected with a lot of military folks and that aspect of if it's important to you to not let that, that voice in your head, that's like, uh, it would be so nice right now to stay in bed another 30 minutes or be really nice right now to do something that doesn't align with what I'm trying to accomplish. And so to be, I've been mission focused and purpose driven. And I've also not been mission driven or purpose driven. So being in both worlds or having experienced both, I know how shitty it feels to feel like you're being driven by external forces or circumstances opposed to having control and autonomy over my life. And I, I choose to have more control and autonomy. So having that mindset really changes things quite a bit. And I would imagine as you went on this journey or doing stuff before you left corporate life, it probably, um, unfolded in a way that may not have been exactly as you thought it was going to be, because maybe you didn't even have a plan going into it, but because you were putting yourself out there and just, I'm using this, this yoga certification as the example, but you probably got new experiences. You probably were exposed to people that thought and operated very differently from you. And so it potentially built up this confidence or this idea that actually I can do this. And, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Oh, totally. There's, at least for me, again, just talking from my standpoint, leaving corporate America and deciding that I was going to do this. And so the do this thing was I was going to start my company and I decided I wanted to get back to my football community and that aspect that I really, really enjoyed and felt fully connected. And I wanted others to feel that feeling and I wanted to create that feeling around me. And so... I happen to know the the strength coach for the Green Bay Packers. So I, I reached out to him and I found somebody that was teaching yoga to NFL football players in Florida. So I was like, oh my gosh, that would be amazing. How cool would that be to be around that community and teaching yoga, feeling good physically, emotionally, and spiritually and all that. So I reached out to him and got some positive feedback uh, that there was an opportunity or potential in the space. And he referred me to, to somebody else that taught specifically yoga to athletes. She had a whole course to then I got certified through her practice to teach yoga to athletes. And then I was trying to figure out how to get started with it all. And my wife asked me if I'd ever thought about coaching high school football. It was the most obvious question that I hadn't thought of. So I kind of smacked myself in the head. Hey, Steve, but, just timeline. Was this before or after you left corporate America? Before. Okay. Before. So you're, once again, you're taking on yet another thing to potentially see what the possibilities are. Right. So COVID was very uh, helpful with all this stuff because of the fact being remote as a sales rep and being hindered, like no ability to see people face to face, then it gave me the opportunity to, to work my schedule a bit. So I just did a Google search on high school football coaching positions near me. There was two schools that popped up that had listings. One was pretty well set with their coaching staff. The other one uh, was in, I'll say dire mode, looking for additional help. So I was able to volunteer coach with this high school football team 
and come in at a perfect opportunity. The team uh, has had a losing kind of track record and reputation for many, many years. They just had a new head coach come into play, and it just so happened the head coach was so similar to what I yearned to have a coach be like from that high school days um, that it was the perfect situation. And so I essentially started working with him, coaching the defensive line for the high school team and also incorporating yoga and the mindfulness, mental training stuff. And so I became known as the Zen master coach, but that was my beta environment to really test out if this is something I wanted to do or not. And it totally proved out to be something I wanted to do. I love it. I love it. So, so tell us where you're at now with all of this today, because now you have left, you're doing some exciting things. Uh, it's kind of like a movie in progress, but, but share what you're doing now. So I have started two different companies, essentially doing similar things. So one is dedicated, one's called Green Shoe Consulting. I'm providing email security consulting, and it's adding in the mental skills training aspect to help minimize, manage, reduce stress and anxiety for business executives, uh, specific to the IT security community. And then the other one is teaching yoga and mindfulness and mental skills training to athletes. That one's called Brummel Academy. And so there may be at some point a combining of those two together, but for now they're separate. Um, but essentially I am teaching yoga, mindfulness and mental skills training to athletes and executives so that they can perform their best in their, their sport, their job and their personal lives. And it's my I way to make the world a better place. You're like on the front lines to a certain degree of mental health challenges in some areas that experience significant anxiety and stress. Is there any observations that you have about the work that you've done with folks that are actually experiencing this type of stress that is like relentless, does not go away? Um, yeah. So I, I just gave a speech last Thursday uh, at an IT conference in Chicago. Um and I'm also speaking at a lot of colleges for mental health for student athletes. So what I'm seeing is a, a big yearning for, for people to feel more connected, which is super ironic with all of the technology that we have that connects us all, but to feel connected, to be seen, to matter and to be loved and to feel like they are not just another cog in the wheel. And especially in the IT security com community, there were multiple different IT security leaders presenting throughout the day at the conference. They were all talking about the fact that they, they speak a different language in IT security than the other business groups. Therefore, they, they don't quite fit in. They don't feel they belong or they're accepted. They definitely don't feel heard or seen because nobody outside of IT security really knows what they do or what they're talking about. And so 20 years ago, it was the same talk tracks. How do we get budget? How do we communicate with the business owners? Right. How do we, uh, how do we manage in this, this environment where we're expected to 100% protect the organization from threats, which is not at all realistic. So you're up against a completely unrealistic outcome and you're trying to manage that. It's not possible. So there has to be a different understanding because like when I'm coaching athletes, there's so much performance anxiety or beating themselves up over making a mistake or whatever it is that 
The focus then goes to the bad things that could happen, which is what you end up manifesting. So all those, I was just going to finish with all that being said, there's so much focus on the outcome and the achievement, which predominantly we don't have control over, or at least we don't have full control over the outcome. We do have control over the process. So trying to change the perspective and the culture from focusing on the outcome and what you don't fully have control over to more focus on the process and those things that you do have control over and rallying around those things. I would argue that many executives, when they look at IT and other areas like this, they're only focused on the outcomes, meaning like cyber breach or not, something go wrong, you know, system go down. Like those are all bad outcomes and not really understanding the stress that those professionals are under, what they're going through, or quite frankly, even what they do. Just think about the impact that that has. And so if you're thinking about how do you become a great leader, back to your point, to really understand what drives these individuals, what they're doing, how they do it, the pressure they're under, you do those things, you're going to be a much better leader. And that's not just for IT. It's for you know all of the other areas where you may not have a subject matter expertise. Completely. I would also suggest watching Ted Lasso. <laughs> yeah, you've said that. I still got to watch that show. I have not had a chance to watch that yet. Hey, hey Steve, I, I love where you're at right now. I love how you've pivoted. I want to ask you, and I'm going to do this kind of in a lightning round because there's a few questions that I'm dying to get your, your thoughts on. Um, so lightning round would be, you know, I'll ask the question, give me kind of a, a 10 or 20 second answer. Um, so when you think about this, now that you, you literally have pivoted your entire life. And if you go back and you really think about it, it's like you, you had like a 20 year gap of time where you were kind of doing stuff just to make a living. You weren't connected to it. You had a a 90% bad hit rate on, you know, bad bosses. That's not really good. And now you've kind of found your thing, which I think is amazing. And you're kind of at the beginning still of this journey. So it's only likely going to get better, especially as you you get more experience and as you engage with different athletes groups, um, IT organizations, um, different companies, I think the world is your oyster right now. But but in retrospect, when you think about your journey and you think about where you are today, what do you think is the most important thing that you did? Huh. That's a, that's a tough question. So 10 second answer. Um, <laughs> I'll give you a little more than 10 seconds, but, no, it's, but it's, what stands out? I think one, we all have a personal philosophy, which is just the values and principles that we operate with. We're challenged with articulating what that is to other people. So mm. I, I think taking the time to really understand what those things are and reflecting on those and then understanding and and taking a realistic view of what are those things and am I living in alignment with them? Well, you know, what's interesting. I've thought about this a lot and I guess um, I'm going to come at this maybe from a, a side angle. What I experienced initially after leaving the company I was at for three decades is I kind of knew the talk track, but I don't know if I fully believed it. So is there an element of belief in that as well? Which I think ultimately, if you believe it, you're probably a whole lot more compelling. Yeah, the belief in myself was essentially the main belief, you know? Mm. So the, the only reason that I took the jump, so to speak, was to bet on myself. Right. 
right? And so I, from my standpoint, and it's, it's that aspect of trust and confidence, which is the only way that you generate trust and or confidence is by having some type of proof point previously to look at, okay, I've done these things, or I have had a track record of having success at some point. What was it that allowed me to have success? What did that feel like? And then leaning into that and saying, okay, I do have experience in doing something that would lead to success. So that generates trust and confidence that you can repeat that. Right. 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 And, and it, yeah, and, no, and, please keep going. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to uh, get you off. No, just, just leaning into that and, and, and believing that you have the, the ability to create success and whatever that is defined as for you. Right. And going back to what you said about really coming up with what you're doing and who you are, I think there's also this notion of uh, putting the hard work in. And what I mean by that is how can you tell your story in a way that's compelling? And oftentimes that gets back to, you know, your backstory. Like, I think you have an amazing backstory where you had incredible experience with your high school folk, with your high school coach, and then many years of bad experiences with leaders, which has then prompted you to get into this, which makes it a whole lot more compelling than this is just what I am doing now, because you're doing it for a reason that's connected to something very deep inside of you. Yeah, totally. Uh, that's where a lot of that reflection comes into, like understanding who you are as a person, like doing that because that's self-discovery, you know? And from my standpoint, there was a lot of years there, like you mentioned the 15 years where I stayed in that role, right or wrong, good or bad, because of what I thought I needed to do and justified doing that because of what I thought I needed to do and what my obligations or responsibilities were, opposed to also saying, yeah, I, I know what my responsibilities and obligations are. That still, that doesn't mean I can't make the change to still adhere to those and support those responsibilities and obligations just in a different capacity. So Steve, I'm really curious now that you're on the other side, although still kind of at the beginning of really living your dream, what are some of the things that you once thought were important that you realize really isn't? Yeah. So that leads me into the thought of originally when I was coming out of college, my thought was focused more on the monetary aspect of things that I needed to make a certain amount of money in order to be able to help others out, or that was the, the financial aspect or money was really something that would help others out. And there's definitely a place where money helps with certain things, but it's not the crux or core component of happiness. So from my standpoint, growing up the way that I did, we grew up poor, but I always felt like I had everything that I needed, like the main things in life, you know, like I had a family that loved me, a support structure. I felt seen and heard most of the time in that, air, <laughs> in that environment. But what I've come to figure out is that the two things that really lead to fulfillment are growth and contribution. Meaning that if you're continuously seeking out ways to grow as a person and as a human, that's one piece, but then contributing 
and helping others in your community and really having an impact on, on those around you, those two things is what, at least from my experience, lead to fulfillment. Right. And I, I don't think you're saying that having the financial means to take care of yourself isn't important, but if you, and I'm just going to use the words that you, you talked about, if, if you're not feeling that you're getting growth or that you're not able to contribute in whatever you're doing, but you're making a shit ton of money, you're probably going to feel very unfulfilled. So if you can add growth and contribution into the mix, um, and if you're making good money, that's a good thing. But but don't sacrifice those things in pursuit of just money. And one of the things that I, I worry about with my own kids is that there is this mentality, and I don't think this is anything that new, but when you're going through college, like find that job that's going to pay you a lot of money. When in fact, 95% of kids that ultimately get into, you know, a role are like, this is what this is all about. And yes, I'm making great money, but I'm miserable and I'm working too hard. And so I think you may have mentioned this earlier is when you're in college, actually to do the hard work, not necessarily just to get through college and get good grades, but to really use that as an opportunity to figure out how you can actually do work that fulfills you. Because if you don't do that, it's going to be a very long, hard life. And like you, you had to wait 20 years to make that pivot. Totally. I, one, I believe in abundance. So the monetary aspect is definitely something that is there, but that's not my number one, two or three priority. Right. Well, now, like, yeah. And the it, irony is that you'll probably find money once you start doing an incredible job in the roles that you are, the companies that you're now leading. Exactly. And that's more my focus of, Am I adding value? Am I doing something that actually impacts somebody else or the community around me or whatever in a way that um, adds the value that I want to add? I love that. So Steve, two final questions. The first one focuses on that person that's out there that's heard everything that you've had to say, that you've gone through this really incredible life of, of learning kind of what is important to you. You've now acted on it. You're on that cliff. You jumped. You're actually thriving now. What advice would you have for others that are sitting there saying, God, there is something that is just pulling me to do that thing that I know is going to fulfill me, but I just don't know what to do. I'm worried. I, you know, I, I think about security. I, I think about the money. What are others going to think? What are my parents going to think? What's my significant other going to say about it? What, what advice would you have for them? The advice would be, one, really do some work to find out who you are and what's important to you. Because the challenge is, is when we start focusing, that's really the threats that we're faced with today is, you know, they, they talk about in psychology that we operate off this two million year old mind where we have this great alerting system that 2 million years ago when we were out in the wild and worried about saber-toothed tigers trying to kill us, that we would be alerted with that survival instinct of fight, flight, or freeze. So we no longer have that saber-toothed tiger trying to kill us today. Today, our threats are more people's judgments, expectations, and opinions. And so really understanding that and being able to say or understand the external components do not drive happiness. It's really starts inside. So doing the work to really identify what's important to you and then leaning into that, like having the courage and finding some support to be able to take that step towards whatever that 
happiness looks like for you. You know what? And, and this is going to sound maybe overly simplistic. So I'd love, given the fact that this is a lot of the work that you do now, but, but one of the things that I've thought a lot about, because I do ask myself or have asked myself that question thousands of times over the last 20 to 25 years. Um, but I think what really has helped me is when I'm in a quiet spot and I ask myself, what is that thing that makes me feel good? And oftentimes what I've reflected and where I ultimately got to, it's when I can actually one-on-one make a positive impact in somebody's life, which you could take that so many different ways, but I just started there. That's what matters to me. And at the end of the day, if I can kind of pivot my life and focus on making an impact one person at a time, however that may be, feels pretty goddamn good to me. And if I could, if I could replicate that and multiply that and do that with lots of people, even the better. And so I know that a lot of times when people think about that question, like, you know, really go deep on what's important to you. For me, at the end of the day, it's like, what makes me feel good? It makes me feel fulfilled. And if I can answer that, then I can position my life around the answer to that question. Totally. I did a, um, a meditation. I took a meditation course through Jack Cornfield recently. Oh, yeah. Yep. And there was a very simple, like, maybe it was a 30 minute meditation that I went through, but it, it was essentially to, to confront a fear that I've been feeling. And then to offset that with a time where I f- my fear was essentially not feeling connected or that I was cared for or whatever it was. And then the other side to that was thinking about a time where you felt the opposite of that fear. So I grew up next door to my grandparents. And I remember as a, a kid, like a six or seven year old kid walking across their driveway, my grandmother opening up the storm door kind of halfway and then her arms open. And I walking into this huge bear hug from my grandmother and feeling so completely supported, loved, and just happy and like taken care of. Um, and just feeling the strength that she had and the, the unconditional love that she had for me. And in that moment, I was like, that's the feeling that I want everybody to feel when they're with me. Wow. That's powerful and powerful on so many different levels. First of all, there is no financial component to that. That also was just a single memory that you had when you were a little kid and you remember it to this day. So it speaks to the the power of moments uh, that we could create for ourselves and that we could create for others. So I, I absolutely love that. Hey, Steve, final question. I think you're ready for this. So when I, when I put together this podcast, um, I love this metaphor and as a musician, hopefully it works with you, but that every one of us is just trying to figure out that song that's within us, that thing that really does fulfill us, that makes us feel whole. And I think every single person that I've ever met is in pursuit of that. And what I love about your story is that it took a while to kind of unfold, but you're now singing your song. So coming full circle in this, in this conversation, when you think of the journey that you've been on, what is the song that comes to mind for you? And I'm going to ask you just to play like seven or 10 seconds. And then when we come back for you just to share why that song is so important to you. Sure. So I'll go ahead and click play on it. That's that just click play. Yep. (laughs) 
So tell me, so first of all, artist name and then why that song is so important to you. Sturgill Simpson. And for those that don't know, Sturgill is a big, I'll say bluegrass country musician, plus a hard rocker. Um, so me being the former musician, Sturgill has a big bluegrass and country background, as I mentioned, but the song is called Call to Arms. It's pretty much a war protest song, but at the same time, he's he's highlighting where everybody's focus is or where a large amount of the population is focused right now on their cell phones and a lot of distractions, opposed to really doing some self-reflection and looking at what's really important in life. So the song is called Call to Arms. It's a big rocker to get everybody motivated and involved and take a look at what's going on around them to really focus on what's important. And that's where my focus is. And and Steve, I think your story, especially over the last several years, is deep self-reflection, which is why you are where you are today. Yes, sir. Love it. Steve, thank you. I appreciate this. I, I love this story um, because you're kind of like me. You're just an everyday guy that has dreams, that has lived a very full life. And now that you're in your 40s, you're, you're actually doing something that's given you great fulfillment. And you, you jumped and, and look at where you are now. So I really appreciate your story. I, I love telling these stories of you know everyday folks like you and me because my hope is that it will give somebody that's listening the confidence maybe to pursue that thing that has been inside of them for so long. They just, for whatever reason, don't have the confidence or maybe it's just not the right time or right place. And so I know for, for me, you gave me a lot of nuggets that I'm going to take away. Um, and I, I think that's going to be true for others that are listening. So Steve, thank you very much. Yeah, Mike, thank you so much for having me on to share my story and sing my song, man. I appreciate it. I love it. Thanks, bud. Steve, thank you for sharing your journey. Your story of being lost only to be reconnected to a time when you felt alive will inspire many who are looking to rekindle a fire that they once had. Let me leave you with my top takeaways from my time with Steve. First, just because you've charted a path that makes you miserable doesn't mean that you can't use your past as inspiration to forge the next phase of your life. Second, falling into a victim mindset happens to all of us. However, putting your energy there can hold you back in life. It is fully up to you if you choose a different path, just like Steve did. And finally, money is great, but when it comes with a soulless job and a toxic boss, do you really feel like a success? Not on the inside, I would contend. I am on the hunt for great stories of people who were once lost and now are singing their song. Hit me up. If you have a great story or if you know someone who does on social media, Michael Kearney on LinkedIn and mkearney33 on Twitter, you can even email me at mike at timetosingyoursong.com. Until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote went, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place is something that you have left behind. Let it. Is something good.